Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're back with our first installment of Cannibal Power Hour. (laughs) And whose idea was this, Elise? Um, Believe it or not, this was my idea. I'm so happy. (laughs) We've come so far, everybody. (laughs) I just, you know, I don't regret it yet, but I know it will get harder. As we said before we started recording, this movie is kind of like the appetizer to Cannibal Power Hour. And Cannibal Power Hour is kind of like the appetizer to spooky season on the whole. So that's kind of fun. We are covering three cannibal movies. (laughs) And then we're doing like a cult classic as a little sandwich between this and our spooky season. A palate cleanser, if you will. (laughs) A little bit of a 90s palate cleanser, which we've been wanting to cover for a while. And we won't reveal spooky season yet, but we have two cannibal movies to follow our discussion today, which is of The Hills Have Eyes, 1977. Yes, and we will also be doing Fresh, which came out earlier this year, and Raw, which I was very scared for. (laughs) That's going to be the one that might make me regret everything, (laughs) just because of what I've heard about it via Shay. I honestly think it's one of the movies that at least I got asked about when we said we were going to start this podcast. It was Teeth and it was Raw. Oh my God. Of like, when are you going to talk about those? So I'm excited that we get to... uh, (laughs) Knock down the door of Raw, which (laughs) should be very interesting. (laughs) Now or never. Now or never. I can do it. I can do it. But yeah, we're starting with The Hills Have Eyes, which I didn't realize when The Hills Have Eyes came out in 2006 that it was a remake. I remember going to the movie theater. I don't know what I was going to see, but seeing posters for The Hills Have Eyes everywhere and being very scared. (laughs) But yeah, interesting going back in time to the 70s yet again and watching where it all came from. Yeah, and we are going to talk about the 2006 remake a little bit. We did not watch it in preparation for this, and I'm kind of glad we didn't watch it (laughs) just from some of the things that I've read comparing the two, but it is something we're going to talk about. So just some pre-plot trivia. This is written and directed by our guy, Wes Craven. Miss you every day. (laughs) It was his second major feature following his debut, 1972's The Last House on the Left, And then obviously he's known for Screams 1 through 4, Nightmare on Elm Street. So yes, we love Wes Craven in this house. And (laughs) in terms of the origins, when he was searching for a story to film, Craven began looking up terrible things. Oh my god. (laughs) He just like Googled terrible things. (laughs) In the New York Public Library. And while going through their forensic department, he learned of the legend of Sonny Bean, which I had like heard the name, but I didn't know the legend up until this point. Sonny Bean was the alleged head of a 48-person Scottish clan responsible for the murder and cannibalization of more than a thousand people. (laughs) And what interested Craven about the legend was how after Bean's clan was arrested, they were tortured, quartered, burned, and hanged. And Craven saw this treatment of the Bean clan by supposedly civilized people as paralleling the clan's own savagery, so he decided to base a film off of that. Wow. Well, that is certainly a terrible thing. (laughs) Yeah. That worked out. It was also said to be inspired by Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is another cannibal movie that came out in 1974, another classic that we'll cover eventually, and there's multiple parallels between The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Hills Have Eyes, but that is intentional because The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of Wes Craven's favorite films. So nice. He really took what Toby Hooper like laid the groundwork for and ran with it in like a little bit of a different direction. 
And we'll go over our ladies because there's a lot of fucking characters in this movie. Yes. There there's are. a lot of names <laughs> yes. to keep track. So I just want to make sure that we <laughs> get them all in. So the main family we focus on, the matriarch, her name is Ethel. She's played by Virginia Vincent. She is in a Dracula film, The Return Ooh. of Dracula, and a bunch of other 50s and 60s movies. And then there's two daughters in the family we're focused on. One is Brenda. She's played by Susan Lanier, who is a country blues singer. And she does have a few more acting credits. And then Lynn is played by Dee Wallace. And Dee Wallace... Wait a minute. That sounds so familiar. She's in a shit ton of horror stuff. And she's in a shit ton more. This is just the horror stuff that I wrote down. Okay. She has a small role in the original Stepford Wives. She's the mom in E.T., She's in The Howling, which is a classic werewolf movie. She's in Cujo. She's in Critters. She's in the Halloween 2007 remake. She's in Lords of Salem, Three from Hell, and the upcoming Monsters remake. So she <laughs> must be really in with Rob Zombie because those last four are all Rob Zombie. Wow. Films. But she's a fucking queen. I love Lynn. And Lynn is probably the best character in she this movie. She is. And then we have the matriarch and daughter of the rival family, the cannibal family. Mama, who is played by Cordy Clark, and Ruby, who is played by Janice Blythe. She's in the sequel, The Hills of Eyes 2, as well as a movie called Eaten Alive. And I just thought this was so fun. She won the role of Ruby after beating other actresses trying out for the role in a foot race. What? Because Wes Craven, quote, <laughs> wanted Ruby to be fast. <laughs> that is an interesting test. Okay. She does do a lot of running. She does. Yeah, and you can tell she's fit. She's running all over those rocks. Yeah, so the last part of pre-plot trivia actually has to do with the filming conditions. <laughs> oh my god. So this was shot in the Mojave Desert, and the shoot was very unpleasant for the actors due to daytime temperatures over 120 degrees Fahrenheit, which dropped to around 30 degrees <gasps> Fahrenheit during the night, as well as the fact they played physically taxing roles 12 to 14 hours a day, six days a week. Jeez. These people are running up and down... I mean, there's a lot of movement in this They're movie. also in jeans. Why are they in jeans? <laughs> yeah, they're all very covered. You're yeah. right. <laughs> it was even dangerous because Michael Berryman, who plays Pluto in the movie, he has a lot of birth conditions to where, you know, it impacts his appearance, it impacts his physicality. He doesn't have sweat glands. Oh my. So the heat was very hazardous <gasps> to his health and oh he had God. to be attended to after filming every day because he was getting obviously very overheated during shoots. Many of the cast members did their own makeup due to budgetary constraints. They were all paid minimum wage. Wow. <laughs> and okay. Dee Wallace has been quoted to say that she jokes that the dogs that appeared in the film, Beauty and Beast, were treated better than the human cast members. <laughs> yeah, I mean, based on that, it really doesn't sound like this is the glamorous experience you would expect Hollywood actors to experience. Now, horror in the 70s was still a dark spot. They're like, nah, you don't need money. <laughs> Wow. Also, the film was filmed on borrowed cameras from a porn director. <laughs> Wes Craven had to borrow the film camera to shoot this from somebody who directed porn for a living or adult okay. films for a living. So I just thought that was also very funny. That is very funny. So let's get into it. Okay, let's do it. We start off with some monotonous plucky string music as we see the silhouettes of the titual... <laughs> <laughs> I meant to say titular. I know. <laughs> Tittyful. The titty licious hills. Okay. 
Opening scene, we have monotonous, plucky string music as we see silhouettes of the titular hills rolling in the background. And eventually we settle in a small, dilapidated town and a dilapidated gas station within that town owned by an old guy named Fred. Next thing you know, he's kind of milling around and a character named Ruby stops by, who appears to be a local girl and she's begging for food. Fred keeps insisting he doesn't have any and even mentions that he's going to leave. He's getting out of this town and he's not coming back. And Ruby begs Fred to take her with him, but he refuses. He says something about, you know, your dad would get you, he'd get me. We're getting the sense that Ruby is a bit different. Like she comes from a criminal family with a very different style of living. We're not entirely sure, but we know that her family is threatening. And then they're interrupted. Yeah, they're interrupted by a family in a camper with two very loud German shepherds um, (laughs) pulling up to get gas at the gas station. So Fred decides to hide Ruby in his little shack house. And Ruby, what, she's like 16, maybe 14? Yeah, maybe 16, 17. Yeah. And you can tell that even though Fred looks also very like small town, covered in oil, you know, owner of this gas station. Ruby, her hair is wild. Her teeth are black. She looks very unkempt. She's wearing rags, almost very cave woman-esque. So Mm, like, even mm -hmm. though... You could tell there isn't a lot of civilization in this town. Ruby is still standing out from that as to being like, oh, you look like you just came from the jungle or something Mm -hmm. like that. The family says, oh, you know, we're here to get gas. We're on our way to L.A., where Brenda says she's going to see movie stars and fancy cars. Yeah, Brenda. Uh, (laughs) We love that for you. Yes. (laughs) On the way, they are stopping in the desert to see a silver mine because the parents of this family, Bob and Ethel, are celebrating their silver anniversary. (sighs) So they want to stop and see silver in this mine by driving through Nevada on their way to LA to finish their vacation. Fred is very like, there's no silver left. There's a gunnery range there for the Air Force. Like, you should have been here 20 years ago. (laughs) I also, I didn't know his name for a while. I just kept missing when they were calling him anything. So I just wrote down Whiskey Grandpa. (laughs) Or no, Whiskey Santa. Whiskey (laughs) Santa. Because he does look like Santa Claus a little bit. that's really good. A very greasy Santa Claus. And he just keeps drinking whiskey. So this is where we're introduced to a lot of the characters. So you have Bob and his wife, Ethel. And then those two have three kids. Lynn, who is married to Doug. And they have a baby named Katie. You have Bobby and Brenda, who you could tell are like teenagers close in age. And then you have Beauty and Beast, who are brother-sister German shepherds, all caravanning in this camper attached to this car. So as the family is kind of milling around this gas station waiting to fill up, the dogs start acting up. Doug is kind of telling Beauty and Beast to shut up, but we see someone running around the trash heaps outside. So, you know, one of our first pieces of dramatic irony, like we know something this family doesn't. Fred continues to warn the family to stay on the main road. Do not stop at the silver mine, drive straight through and get where you need to go. And they really don't listen. Right after they leave the gas station, one of the cars in the trash heap outside of the gas station explodes. And this causes Fred to predict, quote, there'll be hell to pay now. So get a little bit of prophetic foreshadowing there. But now we're back on the road with the family. Switching focus, they are determined to find the silver mine that Fred insists is empty, but they are lost. 
Fred had told them to stay on the main road. And of course, they did not do that. (laughs) Instead, they are driving through a bomb range because this area of the desert has been taken over by the Air Force. And I guess they're practicing their bomb dropping. So there's just these airplanes that are swooping really low. And, you know, he's yelling. What does he yell? You you said- Oh, yeah. (laughs) A big jet flies overhead and he yells, Jesus Christ on a crunch. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not what distracts him. There's a bunny in the road and that makes him skid off the road into the desert and the tires are- fucked. So they are stuck there and they are trying to assess the situation. The kids are trying to make the best of it. Bobby's doing some like round offs in the sand. I'm like, this man has to be gay. Like he's very (laughs) sassy. He's giving Jesse and Nightmare 2 energy. (laughs) But I don't know if he knows yet. Bob goes on a my goddamn wife rant. Which is like, (sighs) he goes on this whole thing. I wrote the whole thing down because I was annoyed. Oh, go for it. Well, and also he does drop the N-word, which I will not say. And I was telling Shay earlier that I was like, wait a minute. I had to like rewind to make sure I heard it right. But he goes, quote, 25 years, I'm a cop in the worst goddamn precinct in Cleveland. N-word, shoot arrows at me. And the hillbillies throw dogs off the roofs at me. Which, first of all, (laughs) (laughs) okay, like arrows? Okay, and then also like throwing dogs, dogs off fruit. Okay, very specific. It's giving water balloon fight on the roof and sleepaway <laughs> camp. <laughs> Already, I'm a little bit puzzled. Seems a little bit unlikely. And he continues, and I'm even shot at on two separate occasions by my own men. But none of these bastards ever come as close to killing me as my own goddamn wife and her goddamn roadmaps and her wrong turns and her goddamn hysterical screaming and her. And then it trails off because the scene continues. Yeah, I was like, drink every time Bob says goddamn. Because- also, like, Bob, it's your fucking fault. Like, they didn't know where they were going, and he was driving so fast. And Lynn was even like, slow down. But did Bob slow down? No, he didn't. Yeah, Bob is every phobic and istic <laughs> in the language. Misogynistic, <laughs> yeah. homophobic, xenophobic. Racist. Racist. Like, he's every... Every ism in one. I guess at this time, we're supposed to see him as like this really tough, hardened cop that's really hard to bring down. And he's really edgy. He's American. Yeah, today, he just is not my favorite. That's for sure. The scene ends with a panning back shot where we see the families being watched from above. So this is where we start to get a little more context as to, you know, who are these people? And I wanted to see if this is what you thought. So we get a character and we don't see who it is, but the subtitles tell us it's Pluto. Drawing boobs in the sand? Is that like he's drawing something in the sand and he's like, so pretty, pretty girl. Oh, yeah. And he's like Mm -hmm. looking at Brenda. Yeah. And that's foreshadowing for some shit that's going to happen later. But like Mm -hmm. he's drawing the figure of a woman and drawing like her bust and like all that kind of stuff. And then rubbing his hands all in the sand. Very. Ooh. Yes. It's very voyeuristic. It also reads as kind of like childish, like the idea of drawing in the sand. It's kind of a weird moment. So we have some family scenes where Brenda and Lynn are complaining and smoking. And Brenda <laughs> hates her life. And she, every, every, we know that Brenda hates her life. And she hates this. And she hates being hot. And she doesn't like this situation. There's a tarantula scare. Ugh. Fine. 
Doug and Bob decide they're going to split up and walk for help in different directions. So Bob is going to make his way back toward Fred's gas station, and Doug is going to go up the road to where there might be an army base, because that's something that Fred had said. It's like, the only thing out here is the army or the Air Force at this point. So they decide we're going to walk in two directions and try to get help because we can't move our car. Ethel makes all of them pray before they go. They have a little prayer circle. And again, we're being watched from above. Very creepy. I said the dog actors are doing the most. Like Beauty and Beast like want you to know they're there. They're angry. <laughs> they're German shepherds. They're aggressive. And I forget who said it. Was it Doug or somebody else? It says like, remember that poodle he killed in Miami? I'm like, what? Oh, yeah. I think it was Doug. <laughs> like being proud of like, oh, this killer, man. Beast. Remember that yeah. poodle we killed in Miami? I'm like, this dog shouldn't be alive if he killed a poodle in Miami. <laughs> what the hell's going on? But around this time, Beauty seems extra disturbed. And she somehow gets loose from her collar and runs into the hills to chase after whatever is distracting her. And as she runs away, Bobby immediately takes chase. He follows her into the hills We have a scene where he's searching for her, searching for her, intercut with scenes of beauty exploring around where she clearly encounters somebody in the hills. We know it's probably the family or Pluto, perhaps, who was looking on. And after he hears the dog cry out in like a whimper pain noise, he kind of takes pause and he can still hear his family calling for him from the trailer. But it seems like maybe his curiosity gets the better of him. He decides he's going to search for Beauty more anyway and discovers Beauty is dead and she has been, like, disemboweled. Yeah. Yeah, really gruesome. Then I guess Bobby, like, hears something around him. So he gets freaked out and he runs away in terror and then, like, trips, I guess. Falls off the cliff, yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe we're supposed to assume he is unconscious. Yeah. So back at home base near the camper, the girls are keeping warm by a fire. They're trying to call for help. I like laughed a lot at this because Ethel is trying to call for assistance over the radio they have in their camper. And she keeps saying, Maypole, Maypole. (laughs) And it reminded me of our Midsummer episode where you kept saying Mayflower instead of May Queen. (laughs) Oh my God. But the word they're looking for is May Day, not Maypole. (laughs) So there's some comedy there. They connect with somebody, but it's just heavy breathing on the other end. Very, when a stranger calls. Oh, yes. And obviously, it's part of the family. I don't know what to call them. What do we call them? Like the Sawney Bean adjacent family? Like, they I don't, don't know really what to have call a last them. name. How about just the solar system? But because of their- <laughs> the solar system. The solar system is on the other line. Brenda realizes that Bobby is missing and goes looking for Bobby with Beast and finds him. But his face is bloody and he's carrying Beauty's empty chain. But Mm. Bobby isn't saying anything. Bobby does not tell Brenda that he saw Beauty dead. I think he feels a little embarrassed that, you know, he lost the dog and he doesn't want to be held responsible for Beauty dying. And obviously there's a threat out there and he's very scared. But he's the only one that knows there is a threat, but he's keeping it to himself. Seems like a very kind of old-fashioned way of managing conflict, like trying to prevent other people from being afraid when really it's just denying them the knowledge that they should have. Bobby would be the guy in a zombie movie who gets bit and then doesn't tell anybody. Like, he would be that guy. Meanwhile, Big Bob is back at the gas station. He walked those 15 miles with his heart condition and made it back. (laughs) No one appears to be there, but then suddenly there's a gunshot. 
Bob fires back. He had brought his own pistol. Then he finds Fred attempting. Oh, I'm laughing. It, like it's, it's so not strange. funny, but it's so like jarring. Yes, a serious topic. He finds Fred Whiskey Santa trying to hang himself. But Bob, he is not interested. He says, get down from there. Wait, what does he say? He says, <laughs> and this is what's so funny is because Bob is not at all concerned. He's no. just like, he goes over and helps him. And he's like, do you always try to stop trespassers by hanging yourself? Get your neck out of that belt, you jackass. <laughs> he's very, Bob is very like, rub some dirt in it. Yes. Because right after Bob says that, Fred does get down. He's like, fine. Yeah. yeah. He's like, okay, all right, you got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And Bob demands an explanation. He's like, what is going on here? But we don't get the explanation right away. Back at the camp, Bobby finally tells everyone that he didn't find beauty. So he kind of even makes people wait for an acknowledgement of where he was. But now we're back at the gas station. This story that he tells, this tale that he spins. Are you ready? (laughs) So apparently, decades earlier, Fred was married to a nice lady with a young daughter and another child on the way. However, the second baby, a boy, turned out to be awful. (laughs) 20 pounds and hairy. (laughs) That's not even the other part. He also, in addition to being 20 pounds and hairy, came out sideways. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. And he says that it almost tore his wife to shreds, which is like, it almost (laughs) tore his wife to shreds. Anyway, somehow she survived. But the son grew up terrorizing the family, and eventually he burned down the family's house and killed his sister. And his mom, I I guess. guess. She also had to be killed in that, too. But not when the baby was 20 pounds and came out sideways. (laughs) No. So Fred was so angry at his son, attacked him with a tire iron, and then left him to die in the desert. However, (laughs) okay, however, it's still going. Jupiter, the son's name, survived, quote, long enough to steal a whore no one would miss and raise, quote, a passel of wild kids. Okay. There's a lot here. (laughs) So first of all, I have a question for you. Yeah. Well, obviously, this is very telling about the attitude towards sex workers Mm -hmm. at this time. Very frustrating. But also, who is he talking about? Is he talking about Mama? Is Mama the sex worker that he stole? Okay. And then who is Ruby? Is she actually his kid with Mama? Yeah. So Jupiter took Mama to the hills with him. Jesus. And they had four children, Mars, Pluto, Mercury, and Ruby. How come Ruby didn't get a planet name? I actually have things on that. (gasps) Okay. Which I'll I'll talk about at the end. Okay, okay, okay. But yes, the solar system, we love the solar system. I guess the girls can't be planets. Yeah, they're not. They're not, they're not cool enough to be planets. Great. So yeah, this is the story. It's really messed up. And Bob is, again, not reacting the right way. Bob has having no... Re- Bob's like looking around and he's just like tearing apart his tool shed and it's just like looking in boxes and shit. And he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just like, another day on the job. Reminds another- me of Cleveland. He's like, well, this man stopped bitching. Like he just has no reaction to this tale that Fred is crying about. But just like clockwork... Jupiter jumps through the window, grabs Whiskey Santa, and drags him outside and kills him with a tire iron. Which leads me to ask, why now? Which I don't know if if that's ever really answered. I think... Oh, because of Ruby. Because of Ruby. Because... That's right. Now we know that Ruby is Jupiter's daughter, Mm -hmm. and Fred is Ruby's grandfather. So it's possible that if Fred was going to leave... 
he would take Ruby with him might actually yeah. do it. So I think Jupiter felt slighted by that. Apparently, yeah. Apparently he must have caught wind that Ruby tried to escape. So then Bob goes out to try to find him and does pinned to a shed door with the tire iron. Yeah. Kind of like Halloween style. Yes, Bob style. Yeah. Bob. Yeah. Back at the trailer, Bobby is being super emo. Lynn tells him that they tried to radio out to the air station earlier and they just got a weird breathy answer. And Ethel, like Bobby, doesn't really seem interested in acknowledging the weird shit that's going on. She like responds to Lynn's news like, oh, no, no, <laughs> she's not interested in acknowledging that. But we see Bobby kind of take in this information and become more stressed and scared. Suddenly, there is a noise outside and Bobby goes to investigate and discovers that the beast, which they call him the beast, not just beast, has broken off his chain and run off. So Bobby is crushed. One dog is enough, now two. But Beast, you know, he... He knows his way around. He does. He seems much more alert and aware. So Bob is running back toward the trailer now. He does not in the state to be running, but he is running. And he, I don't think he was in a state to walk 15 miles. <laughs> I mean, that's just me. So like definitely taxing. And he hears jeering. And I really like this scene because it's kind of showing how wide and expanse the hills are. Mm. Like, it's almost like no matter where the solar system family is, <laughs> like, it sounds like they're right there, but they could be so far away. Like, the hills are just this all-encompassing nothingness. And he hears jeering being like, oh, you're going to make it back to your girls? Are they going to still be there? You're going to save your family? Bob starts shooting wildly into the night, collapses, and Jupiter captures him. <sighs> and this is where I hear for the first time the phrase Papa Jupe. Papa Jupe. <laughs> That's what Pluto calls his dad. And before the scene fades out, Bob overhears Papa Jupe tell his son that they're, quote, just about ready. Whatever that means. Back at the trailer, Doug returns. He had gone again to look for the Air Force base. He didn't find any help. Bobby seems to almost tell Doug about beauty and her fate. But then the ladies come outside and interrupt the moment, and then everybody heads back inside the trailer. Doug did bring back supplies, though. He brought back rope and, like, tarps and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And that'll become important later because those supplies get put to use a little bit. It's almost like when you, like, Doug was giving me the energy of, like, sending your husband to the grocery store, where it's like, oh, did you get what's on my list? He's like, no, but I got this, and I got this, and I got this, and I got this. Like, that's the energy that Doug is giving to this interaction. He's like, oh, like, did you find somebody? Did you radio for help? No, but there's an army surplus store out there. Look at all this cool shit I got. Like, I got a hunting knife. I got all this rope. I got all this tether. Da -da -da. That's perfect. So next, we get a shot of Beast. He is still out in the wilderness and he has found Beauty's body. He stands over it howling in anguish. Then we are inside the solar system family's cave now. Ruby and Mama are eating Beauty. Okay, and then they hear Beast howling and Ruby reacts to it almost as if it's the ghost of the dog they're eating. But Mama reacts to it like, oh, there's another one. And Mama is mad at Ruby because Ruby is tied up outside the cave. Like she's not even allowed inside the cave. And Mama is taunting Ruby saying, is dog too good for a runaway slut like you? Mm. And I made a note, like, isn't that what you are? Like, not in a me, like, <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not calling Mama anything bad. I'm just using the language that has been used in the movie to describe her. But like, she ran away to the hills with this hairy man. Maybe it's like an example of, 
I think Stockholm syndrome is the word. Like when we first hear about her, it's almost like we're led to believe she was somehow captured by Jupiter. Mm. But now maybe she's been in this reality for so long that she has come to, I don't know if it's for the sake of just coping or survival. She has come to almost seemingly like this life or quote unquote, choose to stay. Like she definitely, I don't think is in her right mind choosing this, but I mean, under control of Jupiter, maybe it has just changed over time. It's almost like when she's described that way, you're expecting like a certain image of femininity that Mm. she doesn't have. Like she almost is very masculine in her presentation. She's wearing bones all over her and like all that kind of stuff. So like, was she this cast aside person like Jupiter was Mm -hmm. in this way where it's like, oh, okay, now we've been able to create these own rules of what is acceptable and what is not. Like, I don't know. Like that origin story is definitely interesting. I I do feel upset that Mama doesn't get more explanation. She really doesn't. And Ruby doesn't really get much either, but Mama gets nothing except that little moment of she was taken or he found some kind of quote whore no one would care about. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> like, how? Anyway, but that's a good question. Like, maybe they were both kind of outcasts in their own right and then found each other. I don't know. After this scene, Jupiter gags Bob and begins crucifying him. Like, um, Did he gag him with a cactus? That, oh, I don't know. I couldn't quite tell because the scene is so dark, but it looked like he gagged him with a cactus. <laughs> I mean, he is screaming in pain, and but obviously he's getting like a stake driven through his hands. Oh, so I, I don't know what it is. Back at camp, Bobby is stressed. The camera is like zooming in on all of these characters and like how worried they are. And it even zooms in on the baby. And I just laughed really hard. That zoom in on the baby just looking very confused. Like I just laughed very, very hard for some reason. (laughs) Its expression is really animated for a baby. It reminds me of that. Oh my God. What is that meme of like the weasel that is like side-eyed with like the epic music in the background? The baby looks like that. And I wrote... Lynn and Doug missing every goddamn turn because they start fucking in the backseat of the family car. And these kisses are worse than Jesse and Kim's kisses. They're so much worse. Right around this time, Bobby here is barking outside and goes to check it out, thinking that it's Beast. But in fact... It's another of Jupiter's sons, Mars. And Mars starts making not only dog noises, but like sheep noises, cow noises. And it scares and confuses Bobby, right? He thought that his dog was out there. He's realizing that something fucked up is going on. So he goes back to the trailer. But because Bobby is a fucking idiot and just casually left the trailer door open when he wandered away into the dark abyss, he comes back and of course finds that it is shut and locked. So he goes and gets Doug and Lynn to see if they can give him their key to get back inside. However, we know that Pluto is now inside and takes notice of the sleeping Ethel and Brenda. Yeah, so Pluto's inside, and I made note of this, and this is something that's going to come up in our discussion later. Pluto is ransacking the trailer for supplies, including food. 
I was thinking like this in conjunction with Ruby begging Fred for food shows that their cannibalization is only out of necessity. Yeah. Because like it's really a decision that Jupiter and Mama seem to be excited about and maybe Mars to some degree. But like Pluto is like, oh my God, there's ground meat. Oh my God, there's fruit. There's this. And he's ransacking and only really taking what they can eat. So it's kind of showing like, all right, these are just people that are put in different circumstances that are making choices they need to survive because, you know, a desert's inhospitable. Like nothing lives in the desert that you can like really eat. Mm -hmm. So it's like, they're just doing what they have to do. That's a really good point. Suddenly there is a massive explosion in the distance, followed by the sound of Bob yelling in pain. So the family rushes over, specifically Lynn, her husband, Doug, and Bobby rush over and find that Bob has been impaled and crucified on a cactus and set on fire by Jupiter. Ethel, from inside the trailer, hears her husband's screams and she rushes outside to help him, but she doesn't notice that Pluto was already in the trailer and now he holds Brenda captive. So Ethel, Lynn, and Bobby and Doug, of course, are now at Bob's aid. And Mars now invades the trailer as well and interrupts Pluto in the act of raping Brenda. About to. About to. We don't exactly like see anything, but I think we are led to that conclusion based on the earlier scene of Pluto pining after Brenda and you know, the fact that Brenda had been sleeping in her bed. Pluto is in her part of the trailer. You know, she's screaming. It's very disturbing. Mars now comes in the trailer, seems jealous of his brother Pluto somehow, and pulls Pluto away from Brenda and starts assaulting the young woman himself. So this is a very disturbing scene. Part of me wasn't sure if it was jealousy or if it was almost like how in a tribe, like the men eat first kind Mm. of situation where Mars is the older brother. And he says a line that says, you wait till you get to be a man. So, Mm. you know, Pluto was like kissing Brenda's neck, like to her behest, she wasn't into it, but throws Pluto off only to do it himself. Not so much, I'm going to stop you from doing this terrible thing. It's just like, you're not entitled to this. I am. Mm. Okay. Like pecking order. Kind. That's how I read it. But I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could read it for sure. This is also where Mars sees Katie, the baby, and calls her fat and juicy. Oh my god. (laughs) Oh no. What's gonna happen here? Oh my god. Oh my god. So... Meanwhile, Doug has extinguished the Bob on fire with a fire extinguisher. And they get him down, but he dies from his wounds. I mean, obviously, I don't see anybody surviving that. And this whole scene, no one is asking, like, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. No one is asking why. They don't seem scared of, like, obviously, the fact that he didn't get up there himself. Who did that and put him here? Again, Bobby's still the only one that knows there's like a threat. Yeah. Except maybe Doug now because they had said that about beauty, but you're not going to think that a human killed beauty. Like you might think an animal did or something like that, right? So speaking of Bobby, he goes off to quote, get those bastards. Okay, that's what he does. So Lynn then leads the hysterical Ethel back to the trailer. Ethel is obviously not coping well. She just saw her husband die. But just as they are about to walk in the trailer, they see Mars trying to leave with the baby Katie. Oh my God. So a a violent struggle starts and we are in the trailer now, this small cramped space. Brenda is still screaming on the bed. Lynn is fighting with Mars Ethel is also trying to put herself in the ring. She's trying to manage, you know, or do what she can to help 
But Mars eventually gets a hold of a gun and shoots Ethel first in the abdomen and then shoots Lynn. And then he and Pluto escape with Katie. Lynn dies. Ugh. Which sucks because I Best character in this movie. Lynn. I loved Lynn. And Brenda is almost killed too on the exit, but there are no more bullets left. So she's spared, which is really lucky. It's also interesting the way that, like, the only person we saw sexually active in this movie was Lynn. Like, mm, her yes. and Doug were having sex in the backseat of the car. But it's Brenda who gets like, the mean-spirited almost kill because Mars puts the chamber of the gun, like, makes her open her mouth Ugh. and, like, shoves the gun in her mouth. And that's when he discovers there's no bullets. But he's like, I'm going to come back for you, sweet girl, or something like that. Yeah, it's <laughs> fucked up. It's fucked up. But it's almost like, I don't know that the solar system family knew that Lynn was getting down. But if we're thinking about how women die and their sexual relationship in the film, you know, Lynn's just kind of like, you're shot, you're dead, you're fine, and whatever. But it's Brenda who gets this like really mean spirited treatment. Is it just because she's younger? Is it just because she's more of like a virgin? I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. So at this time, because of Brenda's screams, she is hysterical, which is also hard to watch. Bobby and Doug return to the trailer and they try to calm her down. Doug tries to hold Brenda in his arms, but she cannot stop screaming. It was very hard to watch, very heartbreaking. She is obviously deeply traumatized. Doug enters the trailer, finds his wife's body. This is also so upset. He has this quiet, tender moment. He asks her not to leave him, but you can tell she's already gone. Then he discovers that Ethel is still alive, actually, but obviously in bad shape. And then he finds that Katie has been taken. And honestly, this is right around the time where I was like, I'm never going camping. Yeah, no. (laughs) Goodbye. I don't don't mean to. This is intercut with Pluto and Mars arriving back to the cave area with baby Katie, who is too calm. I've never seen a baby this calm. (laughs) She's chilling. She's chilling. And then this is where we're briefly introduced to Mercury. And I don't know where he is in the birth order, but you could tell that intellectually he's very behind Mars and Pluto. Just by the way he's talking and the way he's coded, like he's just not as much on the cognitive level of his brothers. We can also tell that by his feathered headdress that he was the one that was lurking around the gas station towards the beginning of the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. They're having some, like, brother talk of, like, oh, you got a baby, it's Thanksgiving dinner, and of course it's, like, horrible. But it's it's almost (laughs) like they're just commiserating, like, it's almost, like, nice to see their relationship like that. But Beast is up on the cliff with Mercury, because Mercury's, I guess, the lookout, and attacks Mercury from behind and knocks Mercury off the cliff and Mercury dies. Yeah, you're right. That scene is really interesting because there's some humor in there, obviously. The idea of like this Thanksgiving dinner and just three bros shooting the shit. But it's also really sad too, because I think it strips away some of the maliciousness that I was reading, just because you can tell, you know, of course there's mean spirited actions here, but they've lived in the desert their whole lives and there's a lack of education and resources. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really clear in that conversation that it's not like they're aware of society and they choose to be evil despite society's expectations, but they just live by the way they were raised by their father, Jupiter. It's kind of like this interesting generational trauma. We're seeing this behavior repeated, repeated. It's almost like they see themselves just as like the apex predators of the desert. I don't think that the sons, at least, Mm -hmm. see the other family as human, really. It's not as if we're both humans and a human doesn't do this to another human. It's almost like how, you know, the opening scene of The Lion King, everybody's singing the circle of life together, but the lions are killing the caribou, (laughs) right? So it's like, okay, that's in their nature. 
they have to eat. That's like how the circle of life goes. And they just happen to be the ones in the cave. They just happen to be the folks that are at the top of the food chain and they're just doing what they need to to survive. Where Jupiter knows what they're doing is depraved. Mm -hmm. And Ruby knows what they're doing is depraved. Yeah. But the sons are just kind of like, oh yeah, we're hunting. We're hunting with dad. You know? <laughs> yes, yes. Which I didn't expect a moment like that in this movie. I thought it was just going to be pure evil the whole time. Right. But I was surprised there. You could tell that the family is ostracizing Ruby even further because Jupiter returns to the cave, slaps Ruby, mm. taunts her for trying to run away, thinking that she's better than them, all of that kind of stuff. They celebrate the Thanksgiving turkey. You know, they're all sitting around the fire and Jupiter's eating and you can tell he's eating Bob. Ew. Like he's eating the chunks of meat that he's eating is supposed oh to be Oh my bob. god, like it was supposed to be a barbecue? Yeah. Like a roast? Yeah. It actually was a lamb's leg in the movie, but oh god. he's eating Bob. And that's where they realize Mercury is missing. Jupiter kind of squares up with Mars is like, well, did you kill them all like I told you to? So you could tell, uh-oh, they're in trouble because no, they left Bobby and Doug alive and Ethel is not dead yet. So... Uh-oh. And Brenda's par- still there. Oh, yeah. And Brenda. Uh-huh. She's still screaming, but yeah. she's there. So back to the trailer, Ethel is dying. She's having a heartbreaking conversation with Doug where she's just not acknowledging that anything is out of the ordinary. She's asking about where Bob is. She's asking about Lynn. I guess she has lasted almost through the night, but she dies. So Bobby and Brenda stay behind. They're trying to radio for help to get a hold of this Air Force base that hopefully can help them. But Doug and Beast... Who has returned. With a radio. With a radio as a way to hear what the solar system family is up to. Venture into the hills to try to rescue Katie. Cue for the second time Bobby telling Brenda to keep it down. (laughs) Which is like, like, yes, I understand where that's coming from, Bobby, but also be a little bit more sensitive. LOL. And just when they think they got through to somebody on the other end of the radio, it turns out to be Pluto telling them to, quote, stand on their heads with their thumbs up their asses. (laughs) And in this conversation, by masquerading as an army person, Pluto gets them to admit they only have two bullets in their gun. (sighs) Yes. So... And no other resources, really. They're stuck. It's not looking good for them. (sighs) So at the trailer, Bobby tries to set a tire on fire to send a signal, mayhaps, to the Air Force base. But Brenda is tired of this shit. She's like, why don't we come up with a plan that actually might work? (laughs) (laughs) So they put something into action. We're not quite sure what it is yet. At the same time, Pluto and Jupiter are making their way back down the hills towards the trailer again. And they are briefly separated. I guess they hear a noise and pause to listen. I think they split up just to like check out to make sure they're covering more bases or something. Yeah. But in that time, Beast, who was nearby, sees Pluto alone and attacks him. So Jupiter comes back, sees his son in pain, and radios to Mars, kill the baby. But of course, because Doug has a radio now, because of what Beast brought back, he hears that command and of course moves into high gear. So Ruby has been taking care of Katie, the baby. You know, Mars goes over to her and takes the swaddle out of her hands. He's like, it's time. And Ruby's like, oh, I can't bear to watch. And then like runs away from sight only for Mars to open the swaddle and see it's a baby pig, which there was a baby pig in the beginning of the movie. It's just yeah. like, oh, it's back. Um <laughs> So Ruby has taken the baby and is running further into the hills to protect the baby from her brother, Mars. Yeah, so lots of through lines happening right now. So Ruby finds Doug pretty much right away and they join forces immediately. Their stories and their hiking trails (laughs) join together. 
So anticipating another attack, Bobby and Brenda decide they're going to use their mother's corpse as a decoy. Cue like one of the 15 times we get a longer than comfortable shot of Ethel's corpse. Just dead body. Did you notice that? There's a lot of it, yeah. It's why? Really uncomfortable. (laughs) So anyway, meanwhile, Beast comes back for Pluto again and finally kills him. Rips his throat out. Yes. So he's down. Pluto's down. Back at the trailer, we see what the booby trap is. Jupiter makes it to the decoy body. And then Bobby starts the car and I guess puts it into drive so that the wheel, it's not the wheel. It's like what the wheel sits on. Yeah. So essentially what they did was take the rope that Doug had brought back Mm -hmm. and create like a slipknot where there is a lasso under Jupiter's feet. And when he accelerates the car, it makes... Like a pulley system. It makes a pulley. So Mm -hmm. it traps Jupiter's ankles together. He falls down and is getting dragged back toward the car by his ankles being pulled by this rope. So then that way he is tied up so that Bob and or Brenda could execute him. However, the rope falls off the system and so it ceases to work and he's left getting out of his little rope lasso in the sand. Obviously not good. He's a very real threat to the siblings. But as he gets closer, Brenda and Bobby apparently had a plan B. They run into the trailer. We see that the trailer had been filling up with gas. And Bobby tapes some matches to the door so that if it opens, they'll hit the strike pad on the floor and cause an explosion. As Jupiter is coming from one direction, Bobby and Brenda make it out the window to the other direction of the trailer. Jupiter seems suspicious, like he can hear the hissing gas on the inside, opens the door anyway. There is an explosion. As Bobby goes back to make sure that he is in fact dead, which good for you, Bobby, that is a good move. We have to make sure they're dead. Brenda, please stop screaming. Yes, Brenda is screaming. Jupiter attacks Bobby, but then Brenda attacks Jupiter with a fucking hatchet, which is pretty baller. And then Bobby fires the last two bullets into Jupiter and Jupiter is dead. We love siblings collaborating. (laughs) It's been long awaited. They have been picking on each other this whole fucking movie. So it's cool seeing them come together. Elsewhere, Doug and Ruby are being chased by Mars in the hills. Doug gives the baby back to Ruby and says like, go take care of her. I'm going to go fight your brother. Um, (laughs) Ruby takes Katie to a safe place. But while this is happening, Doug gets cornered in like a crevasse where there's a bunch of rattlesnakes. And Mars knows this and is like, oh, you came to where they come and lay their babies or something like that. So like Mars is moving in on Doug because Doug has nowhere to go. But Ruby comes out again out of nowhere, distracts Mars so that Doug can get out of where he is. Doug and Mars tussle. Ruby saves the day. Mm -hmm. She picks up one of these snakes and makes it bite Mars's back as Mars is pounding on Doug and this paralyzes him or at least incapacitates him enough where Doug grabs a knife and stabs Mars over and over and over as Ruby cries. His image does what it does at the end of Sleepaway Camp uh-huh. where it just, instead of fading to green, it fades to red on Doug's bloodlusty face. And that's how the movie ends. It's so fast. I was hoping for maybe a little bit more of a conclusion. But yeah, so that's the plot. <laughs> that's the plot. So let's talk about the ending first because I think, you know, it came out of left field, Doug's rage. And like, that's kind of what we're left with, right? 
I got a lot of what we're going to talk about from an article through the eyes of America, Wes Craven's The Hills of Eyes by Matt Carlin. It's such a good article. I'm linking it, read it, because so much of what I'm going to read are his words. So I'm not taking any credit for his thoughts. He really does section out the different themes of the movie so, so well. And something he does is take a lot of Wes Craven's quotes about the making of The Hills of Eyes and puts them all in one place so that you don't have to go find them throughout all of these different interviews that he does. We love that. A lot of what I'm reading, too, are Wes Craven's own words. This is a quote on human nature talking about the myths that he pulled from in The Making of The Hills of Eyes. So in talking about the myths, he said they were very primal. The reason those myths have stayed around for so long is they really nailed certain things about the human condition. They were carrying our cultures in a way that was elemental, boiled down to the barest of bones of what we're all about, Wes Craven said in an interview after the release of The Hills of Eyes. They exposed, for Craven, the fine veneer of civilization that protects us all. And in 1970s America, that veneer was never more fragile. This is another quote. One of the things I did with the whole family was the conscious stripping away of everything they had of civilization to protect themselves, Craven illustrates. First their car and their trailer and everything was just taken away from them. You see what they have when they're just down to their core resources. So this is him really talking about how you see the family for what they have in the beginning and then you see the solar system family for what they don't have. But at the end, you see Doug mirroring that instinctual, primal, killful rage that we see Jupiter employing with Fred, for example, right? So it's really talking about how, like, at their cores, they're the same. Mm. But the family that we're with for most of the movie just has this, like, veneer that they're able to operate within because they have, whereas the solar system family do not have. So this obviously has a lot to say about poverty and the haves, the have-nots, political themes, So this is, again, from the same article talking about poverty. The film is set against the backdrop of rural American poverty. In the land of plenty and wealth, most of America lives below the poverty line. In this regard, Jupiter's clan, like many other hard-pressed Americans, must steal for survival. As we're introduced to them, Ruby informs us that they are starving and that pickings are now slim. She looks desperate. Nobody comes along this way anymore. The world has advanced with highways and byways. The world has moved on and left them behind. Pluto's portrayer, actor Michael Berryman, recalls discussions with Craven prior to shooting the scene in which he raids the RV about how he would only take which he would use. Everything would have a purpose. What they take, they need. There is no waste. Jupiter's clan, likewise, has no use or place for extraneous belongings. Their belongings have no material value beyond the practical use they provide. If this is a response to capitalist culture, what does it say about the clan? Or... Is it more revealing that we have no problem with Bob, his two dogs, his huge RV, and his silver mine? We do not question the actions of the Carter family, but we do Jupiter's clan, even though we know they are starving and only want to survive. The Carter family literally have to drive themselves off the road in order to make their survival less than assumed. Naturally, they are disturbed by this non-capitalist existence. When Doug returns from the desert, he carries with him as much as his arms will allow, declaring, look at all this stuff. No wonder we are paying higher taxes. The Carter family represents modern American society in a miniature microcosm of our great nation. Bob, a retired police detective, has put in years of hard work so that he will now retire in luxury with his too accommodating wife and their ever-expanding family. Altogether, they go to the Badlands to look for more. Huh. That is really interesting. Like, the calling out that subconscious assumption that nothing is wrong with the Carter family but now bringing to light that they, because of their lifestyle, are exuding wastefulness. 
Excess. Excess, yeah, is a better word. And I don't think we talked about this dialogue, but when Jupiter is crucifying Bob, he says a lot of on-the-nose things. He's saying, you come in here and you put your life in my face, like you and your rich this and you and your rich that, like I'll show you. So you could tell there's a lot of resentment. And it's almost how like when you are at the bottom or you are in a food chain, you always know who's above you, but you don't always know who's below you. Hmm. So it's like- Jupiter and his clan are always aware of people who have more than them. But Bob and his family, the Carter family, are all disgusted with the way they live their lives because they can't imagine living a life without what they have, Mm -hmm. even though they're coming from the same cloth, essentially. Right. Wow. Okay. So talking about some political themes, this comes from the Hills of Eyes Wikipedia Craven has said the film expresses rage against American culture and the bourgeoisie. John Kenneth Muir views the Carters as representing the United States, while Schneider writes that the Carters are a bourgeoisie family, while the film's cannibals can be understood as representing any number of oppressed, embattled, and downtrodden minority, social, or ethnic groups, including indigenous peoples of the Americas, African Americans, hillbillies, and the Viet Cong. Muir believes that while the Hills of Eyes can be interpreted as an allegory for the Vietnam War, Hmm. this is complicated by the fact that the Carters defeat their enemies, unlike American forces in Vietnam. Muir instead sees the film as being about a class divide in America, with the Carters symbolizing the wealthy and Papa Jupiter's family representing the poor. He supports this theory by noting the Carters and the cannibals are both from America. The phrase eat the rich is coming to mind. I know! Literally eat the rich. We're literally seeing a movie eat the rich. Yeah. Wow. Again, I think because they make Ruby so sympathetic from the beginning. Mm -hmm. If they hadn't have done that, it's very easy to see why, oh, okay, these people are just depraved. These people are just crazy. And that actually brings me to a little bit about the remake, the 2006 remake. I said we were going to mention it. So this is from a YouTube video from one of my favorite horror YouTubers, Ryan Hollinger, in his video, The Horror and Meaning of the Hills Have Eyes. And in his video, he talks about some comparisons between the 1977 original and the 2006 remake. Overall, the 2006 remake is a lot more brutal, a lot more gruesome, a lot more bloody, and it brings in new dynamics. So for example, in the remake, Doug is characterized as a weak liberal, with him and Big Bob having a much more contentious relationship and butting heads over ideology. They're always fighting, and Bob's like, you know, this like gun-toting Republican retired cop, where Doug is like this white button-up shirt scholar type of guy. But Ryan Hollinger goes on to say that it's almost subverted and it's almost like not carried out to its best degree because at the end, Doug is brutalizing these people. So it's almost like, is that saying, oh, this is the right way to be? And like, once you go through struggles and you stop seeing things through these ideological concepts, you see how the real world is like, is that what that's saying? Or is that, again, is that going back to that human nature type thing? Like, it's a little fuzzy. It's a little confusing because it's a much more of a heel turn where in the original... Doug's portrayed like a hippie. Like he kind of looks like somebody from the Beatles. (laughs) Yeah. He's non-confrontational and he's not paranoid like Bob is. But Ryan Hollinger points out that this relaxed view of their situation makes him put his guard down and allows Lynn, Ethel, and Brenda to be attacked. Doug, I feel like, well, he's not even around a lot of the time. Right. Because he goes out to try and find the Air Force base and then turns around because he can't. And then he's with Lynn in the car having sex misses some of what's going on there. He tries to put out the burning Bob. I feel like when I think of Bobby, 
I have more of those thoughts about if you only communicated from the beginning, maybe all of you could have worked together and had a higher survival rate than you did. There's only so much you could do about Bob. He was pretty fucked. But like Lynn and even Ethel, like maybe they could have made it out of there. Right. And that's something he talks about, too, about how Bob and Bobby have the same name. It's almost the idea Mm -hmm. of trying to pass ideologies down to new generations and how things can get muddled in between those things. And that actually reminds me of a quote, again, from this article by Matt Carlin talking about masculinity. So he brings a Craven quote saying, This picture has a lot of power. It is all about family. It is all about competition between various generations, not wanting to be embarrassed in front of them, not wanting to expose them to something you think you are protecting them from. Competition between father and brother. It was all about being a man, which is interesting. I even noticed the way that the family talked about their dogs, Beauty and Beast. Mm -hmm. There were a couple lines in there about like, Beauty always barks at everything, but Beast only barks when he's about to make the kill. And it made me think about Brenda's screaming. Mm. Like she was very vocal, like Beauty was characterized as being, and like we saw her being, but somehow, you know, Bobby, he only screamed when he was going to make the kill or he, you know, got the gun and was the one ultimately to kill Jupiter, despite the supporting role that Brenda played. It felt kind of interesting how I even noticed gender roles in the names of the dogs the way they were talked about in addition to the family, which is interesting because it's making me wonder, is that the Carter family placing their own ideologies on things beyond them, like the animal kingdom and the way that they see the Jupiter clan, right? It almost makes me think too of like patriarchal, like revenge. Mm. Like I'm wondering because Beast pushes Mercury off the cliff and we don't know who killed Beauty. Like did Mercury kill Beauty? Because then we see Doug coming back and killing Mars, who killed his wife, Lynn. Yes. So it's almost like that savior complex. It might have been Mercury. I mean, he kills Pluto too. Yes. But still. That's a really good point. vengeful thing. Because it does seem random. Like, why is this dog pushing Mercury off a cliff? You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I think you're right. It might have been Mercury that was in the hills. Or Pluto, which he does also kill. Right. It was either one of those, I'm pretty sure. Wow, interesting. So even the dog mimics this vengeful, masculine, I will get you, I will save your memory, or yeah, wow. And Bobby, even when he says the line, I'll get those bastards, it's so full of that. Another thing the remake does, which makes me glad that we didn't watch it, is I think it takes away the nuance of the solar system family. Because in the remake, their motivations are kind of shrouded by them being affected by these radioactive chemicals due to the government experimenting with nuclear weapons in their town. So it makes them a representation almost of the aftermath of war, like Agent Orange or something like that. Like, they're deformed. They're not human. They're humanoid. Whereas these folks in the original are very much human. They are just living an alternative lifestyle yes. in a in a lifestyle that's dependent on survival. But we see them having tactics. We see them having strategy. Like, they have walkie-talkies. They have a purpose as to what they're doing. Whereas the Hills Have Eyes remake is more so, oh my gosh, look at these mutants mm. that have just come out of the hills that are bloodlusty and just want to kill and rape and pillage because they can. So it kind of takes away the nuance that Wes Craven, I think, sowed in being that. Even if you look at the structure of these families, it's the same number of people, right? Oh, yeah. You have Papa Joop and Mama with four kids. And then you have Ethel and Bob with their three kids plus Doug. And then, you know, there's Beauty and Beast and Katie. But other than that, it's the same number of people just gender flopped a little bit. Yeah. They're mirrors I, of each other. That is pretty crazy. I also feel like 
because Wes Craven has humor in this movie, even though it's dark, and also, like you said, these human moments, like the conversations between brothers, I think it makes these themes more accessible, if that makes sense. Like when I watch this movie, I could tell that it was saying something. I wasn't left thinking like, oh, this is just about nuclear waste affecting people, which I guess in a way like metaphorically could be about government mismanagement and how it affects people and the system and things like that. But maybe a little bit more metaphorical and less, I I don't want to say obvious because like to use your word, it is very nuanced, but I think it was more clear or it was more comprehensible in the 1977's version. Hard for me to say, though, because I haven't seen the 2006, but just based on what I'm hearing. So the last thing I have is just like on the names of the solar system family. Like, why <laughs> are they named after after the planets? So again, this is from that article by Matt Carlin. Jupiter, the largest planet, is also the name of the primal father. The father that you would just never cross. His ferocity went beyond anything you can imagine, says Craven. Meanwhile, there's also Pluto, the least known of the planets, and is strangely safe. And he is the most sympathetic, I would say. I mean, aside from, like, the Brenda thing, like, he's taking care of Katie a little bit more. He seems to just be a little bit more sympathetic. Yeah. And Mars, the god of war, so terrified by the father, you cannot find your own manhood. And then there's Ruby, a gem among her family, and the sole hope for a brighter future is different. A ray of hope that seeks to somehow save in a land suited for destruction. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. I think it's cool when names in movies are chosen deliberately, which based on this podcast, it seems like a lot of them are. I feel like we usually have something about the names, which is cool. Oh yeah, for sure. So that was The Hills Have Eyes. Okay. I liked that. I was surprised that a movie from the 70s, well, in the horror genre, could make me feel so invested at times. I sometimes feel like older movies in the horror genre have effects or differences in their filming from what I'm used to seeing that take me out of it. Like when Lynn died, I was so upset. And when Doug tried to hold Brenda after her assault and she couldn't stop screaming, I was so upset. Like I thought this was going to be easier to watch because of its age. And I don't think that it was, which I think is a testament to the movie itself and also the story and what's going on. It really still has a lot of weight. And I think it employs something that I like when horror movies do is like the less you see almost makes it scarier. Mm. Like in terms of like, it's a cannibal movie. You think you're going to be seeing blood, guts and gore and you really don't. Like you see Bob be burnt to a crisp. And of course you see the solar system family eating indistinguishable meat. (laughs) Yeah. But like, it's not to any degree, like some of the visceralness that we're going to get out of Raw, for example. uh, I'm so Oh my god. Oh my god. I'm gonna have to give myself five days to watch. I'm gonna have to start now and watch maybe 10 minutes a day or something to try to get through it. I'm so scared. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so you have Fresh and Raw coming at you quick to round out our Cannibal Power Hour. So if you want to get ahead of that, you can watch Raw on Netflix and Fresh on Hulu. And if you want to keep up with us for episode announcements, polls, things like that, follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast. And or feel free to email us with any recommendations or comments, suggestions at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.